Father in heaven, you are so awesome. You rule the universe, Lord, and we need you so much to rule our lives. I pray that as I share this message, those who are listening will be able to be blessed richly. They will see personally how the gospel applies to their lives and their situations. Thank you so much, Lord, for your love for us. Amen. All right, today I'm talking about when people are big and God is small. This is, from my own personal experience, an area that I really battled with. This is actually part one of two that I'm going to be talking about. This one and the next one kind of go together because they're talking about the two ways that we tend to get off balance in, once again, not looking to Jesus. Um, but I want to start out by telling about my own personal struggles. This is how, for me, everybody, you know, everybody deals with issues of worship because we're created to worship. We're all, if we're not worshiping God, idolaters searching for something else to worship. And whatever else we worship, it's going to be some form of self. We may think that this other person is the center of our lives, but they're not. It's what that person does for me that makes me feel loved or worthwhile that becomes the center of my life. So we're always either God-centered or self-centered in some way. What I want to talk about today is how I fooled myself into believing that I was not self-centered. I was other-centered. I loved people so much. But the reality was my life was obsessed with worshiping people and what people thought of me. Now, when I was like 14, 15, see, my older sisters got to go to academy, but then I didn't. And academy didn't, um, shall we say, didn't always help them to become who they needed to become. So my parents decided I wasn't going to academy. But all my friends went off to academy, and I was left not having any friends and feeling most sorry for myself. But every month, we would get the Mountain Echo the newspaper from the academy where all my friends were, and I was so desperate for friends. Here, everybody else is going on. They're becoming popular. They're, they're having all these great times, and I was at home by myself. Well, I would read this Mountain Echo newspaper, and I would memorize all the stuff about the popular people. When I'd gone up and visited my sisters, I'd gotten to know people, you know, a lot of the upperclassmen and whoever, so I'd memorize, especially the senior profiles. Every month they would have several newspaper columns where they would talk about each of the seniors. So by the end of the year, they talked about each senior. So there'd be like maybe five or six, something like that, each month where they tell about this senior, their hobbies, their birth date, what they love to do, their, you know, their favorite foods, their favorite sayings, whatever. I would memorize this stuff. And seriously, I, went, I ended up working at summer camp one summer and, I mean, I worked there several summers, but I was with one of the really popular guys, and I was like, wow, you know, I can't believe he became my friend. We were hanging out, and it was just too wonderful, you know. But then I, I remember reading his palm one day. I said, oh, I can tell your palm. I'm reading your palm. This is your birth date. These are your favorite foods. He's like, really? <laughs> it's embarrassing to me now, and I think how obsessed I was with trying so hard to be popular. And of course, along with that would be, I've got to wear the right clothes. Now, I was never good at figuring out the right clothes. We always joked, I wore hand-me-ups because my younger sister was really fashion conscious, so she'd pick the right stuff. And then when she was tired of it, she'd hand it up to me. But you know, I, the one thing I knew is if you wear really tight jean shorts, you'll pretty much get attention. So that's what I do, you know, my standby. I figure out I can wear this and you know, some spaghetti strap kind of shirt and it'll work. 
So I would do this and just notice, you know, guys like to sidle up to me, put their arm around me, hang out with me at summer camp. It was so much fun. I felt so great. But it was always so empty. And, you know, I remember when I finally had arrived at where I felt I was popular. And I was hanging out at a staff party one night at the camp. And suddenly it just struck me. Here we were, you know, watching Inane style. I think we were watching The Little Mermaid. Yeah, it was around 20 years ago, believe it or not. And, and we're, you know, nothing, it's not like an evil party where we're all dancing and ripping our clothes off. There's no drugs, no anything like that. But it was just an empty party. And here we were, a bunch of empty people, and I thought, here are the people I worked so hard to earn favor with. And they're all so mean to each other and bickering, and so-and-so's dating so-and-so's ex, and so they won't talk, and, you know... I just realized how empty it all was. And I actually left in the middle of the party, these parties that I had been thinking about all year long. Maybe I'll be able to go to the staff parties and be so popular, you know. And I went back to my room and I just laid on my bed and cried because this is what I had been consumed with if I can just get popular with the cool kids. And it was all for nothing. And now I realized I've got to do something different. And that was when I decided I was going to pursue God with all my heart. I'd been thinking, you know, suicide, is that a good idea, maybe, you know. But now I thought, you know, it would be really dumb to kill myself if the God thing really works. If you just give yourself completely to God, he'll satisfy your heart and all that. But I'd always heard you have to do it 100% or it won't work. So I knew that much, so I figured, let me just give myself completely to God for a year and see how it goes, and if it doesn't work, I can always kill myself later. And so far, that's worked out. I haven't had to kill myself. Isn't that great? <laughs> I've never needed to because when I gave my heart to Christ, it was incredible. It didn't mean that all my problems went away. I just shared in the last presentation some of the problems that I had that I really had to face only when I was 18. 18, 19 years old, I finally started coming to grips with how to find freedom from anxiety and major depression issues. But God was at work in my life in powerful ways. And one of the first things he helped me to understand was that I needed people's attention far too much. You see, when you're in that whole mindset where you need people to care about you, at least for me, I was very obsessed with attention from the opposite sex, especially. So I would try to dress in ways and laugh at the right jokes and you know, do whatever it was that I could to make myself feel good. I'm trying to, really, I was just using these guys to prop up my sense of identity. You know, I have a crush on somebody, but I had a crush on like five guys all at the same time. What is that worth, you know? And if any one of them was interested in me, hey, great. And in fact, if one of them that I wasn't interested in was interested in me, I'd probably be happy with that too. Just somebody, please like me, you know? It was just a recipe for destruction and for danger. And the Lord delivered me. I praise God that he was so good to protect me from some of the, the things that could have happened. But you know, whenever I would crash, when a relationship wouldn't work out, I would say the same thing, I'll never fall in love again, I'll never let anybody close to me again. All guys are... Nobody ever said that? Maybe they don't say that these days anymore. All guys are jerks? Come on, no, none of you girls have ever said that or heard that, right? <laughs> That's what I would say. All guys are jerks. Who needs guys? We're fine without guys anyway. So in, in Academy, I actually founded the, the Old Maids Club with a couple of my other friends. We, we were going to grow old together, never get married, and die eating spaghetti without any sauce. 
I don't remember why, but that was what we were going to do. And we didn't need guys. We were fine. The other two married before I did. Ha, 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 ha. I'd taken an inordinate amount of pleasure in that. But the fact was, we all got married eventually, right? <laughs> I, I would swing back and forth between this terrible need for guys and then this terrible need to protect myself from being hurt because they all just hurt me. Guys always just hurt you. That's the way they are. I needed connection with people too much. And so when I was too vulnerable, too needy, then of course guys are going to push me away. They realize I don't actually love them anyway. I'm just trying to absorb some of their glory and their coolness onto myself. You see, idolatry is self-love. It's self-focus. And most relationships are built on that in this world because most people have not found their sense of identity and worth and lovability in God. And so they try to get it out of people or out of things, out of accomplishments and what other people think of them when they have this position or this amount of authority or that kind of car. It's still empty, but it's better than nothing, right? That's what most people think. You see, God wants us to live on an entirely different theme. The principle that rules the whole universe is the principle of love. You know, love is this amazing concept that God the God who rules the universe values you like there's no one else in the universe for him to even notice. You know, you know is there anybody who can turn out a light over there so maybe we can see the screen a little bit better? I don't know if those lights over there are the right ones, but anyway, we'll try. So the entire universe runs on unselfishness. There's this God who rules the universe who didn't create people in order to get anything out of them but just because he is love. Love is a relational word, right? So God is a relational God, and he's created us in his image as relational beings. Therefore, it's not evil that we want relationships, right? It's actually good and healthy and pure. The problem is when we want to have those relationships satisfy us instead of God. Instead of having a relationship with God, we have relationships with people. And when God is not on the throne of my heart, Self is going to be on the throne of my heart. In some way, whoever or whatever I idolize will be some manifestation of selfishness. God wants his people to stand out as being in harmony with the rest of the universe. You see, you are a teeny little dot in Collegedale, right? And Collegedale is a teeny little dot in Tennessee. And Tennessee is a teeny little dot on our planet. And our planet is a teeny little dot in our solar system. And our solar system is a teeny little dot in our galaxy, right? Which is a teeny little dot, right? So the God who rules the universe looks down at this teeny little galaxy and this teeny little planet and this teeny little town of Collegedale and he sees you. And he who rules that entire universe says, I will die for him. I will die for her. That is what love is about. See, God does not just love you because he wants to get something out of you. He loves you because he is love. So his relationship with you has no selfishness in it whatsoever. A lot of people say, well, God created you because he wants you to love him. He wants a relationship with you. I would challenge that. If I have children because I want someone to love me, isn't that a little selfish of me? What if I get married because I want someone to love me? Would you want to marry somebody if when you ask them, so what is it that really makes you want to marry me? And they go, well, the truth is, I just really want you to love me. Would you want to marry somebody like that? I just want you to love me. Um, no, that relationship is in big trouble.
because when you don't make that person feel happy, they are going to be very angry at you. And they're going to then start manipulating you. If you would just do this, I could be happy. If you would just stop doing this, I would be happy. And that is the foundation of most marriage problems. You mean about the marriage or how, how manipulation? Okay, well, what happens is when a person wants to have a relationship with someone else, their motive is going to be either to love that person or to get that person to love them primarily. In other words, God wants a relationship with you because he loves you, because he is love. He wants to pour love on you. Love is who he is. Love is what he does. So while he does want a relationship with you, his primary goal in loving you is not to get you to love him back. His primary goal in loving you is to pour love on you, just to love you. And if you, you behold that love and you really go, wow, that's what love is, your heart is going to be drawn to him. Then you're going to want to love him back. And God's secondary great goal is to transform you into his image so that you become a lover to others and to him. But his first goal is just to love you. It's not to get anything out of you. If it were, then he wouldn't love the people who are not going to give him anything back. He would only love the ones who it's going to pay off with, right? But we see consistently in the life of Jesus, that's not how he lived. He loved Judas. He loved, maybe most amazingly, he loved the rich young ruler. It says, and I'm going to talk about this in my next seminar, he beholding him loved him knowing that in a moment I'm going to tell this guy, if you really want to follow me, you're going to have to sell everything and give your goods to the poor and come follow me. And the guy's going to go, follow you versus give up everything that I have? Mm -mm, you're not worth that. But Jesus, beholding him, loved him. That tells the way that Jesus loves you. Knowing that you're going to turn your back on him, he pours out just as much love on you. Knowing that when he opens his heart and hands you a knife, you're going to stab him, he loves you on purpose. Not because he wants you to love him back, but because he is love. He just pours it out. He doesn't pour it out saying, I'll love you if you'll love me back. Most relationships, people do not copy that model of love. They say, I'll give you love if you give me love back. And that cycle, when it starts going, feels great. And that's why people get married. He made me feel so loved, and so I found it so natural to love him back. But what happens when he stops making you feel great? Because their goal is fundamentally happiness and not holiness. In other words, they want to feel great in this world, but they don't want to be transformed into the image of a God of love. When those goals get mixed up and happiness becomes their first goal, then when somebody doesn't make them happy, they get mad. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay, well, <laughs> praise God, the gospel is amazing. It amazes me all the time. I keep finding new things and going, wow, he loves me like that? That's incredible. But that's how God is. He loves you not because he's going to get anything out of you, not because if he loves you enough, you'll finally love him back, but because he is love. And that's the kind of love that really awakens love in response. Because when you finally digest that, when you realize he's not out to get anything out of you, he's just pouring out to you because he's love, that's what will make you go, wow, you love me like that? What wondrous love is this, oh my soul. That's when you'll pour your heart out in grateful service to him and you'll be ready to die for him. True security, you see, can only come from knowing that you're loved that way. If you still have an idea that God loves you if you do everything he wants, then you're gonna feel the pressure to do everything that he wants. And if you do everything that he wants, you'll do it with wrong motives 
and you'll feel self-righteous because of it. Look at all the things that I do for him. But when you realize there's nothing you can do to earn that love, and there's nothing you can do to make him stop loving you, then you start realizing what love is about. You see, you can never do anything that can make God love you anymore. And you can never do anything that will make God not love you as much. You can never avoid doing something and then, you know, persuade him to, wow, look at that, she stayed away from drugs again. I love her even more now. He doesn't do that. He doesn't work that way. And you can never avoid doing something or do something that will please him and therefore make him pour favor on you. He just loves you because he's love. When you internalize that kind of love, that's the secret to being able to have healthy relationships with other people, too. Because when you know that God loves you that way, you can take risks with other people. In, in other words, if other people don't love you, when you pour love on them, you'll be able to take it. You'll be able to suck it up, keep loving them, because it's not about you. It's about God pouring his love through you to a person who needs to be loved. And whether or not they give you back what you want, you'll keep loving them. You see, love, only by love, is love awakened, right? Education, page 154, says, Unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence, he denies. Do you get that? Isn't that incredible? Here's the whole foundation of the great controversy. Lucifer said in heaven, You know what, guys? He doesn't actually love us because he's love. He loves us because... He wants to get something out of it. He created us because he was bored or lonely or wanted somebody to worship him all day and say, you are mighty, you are holy, you are so wonderful, you are so good. He wanted some kind of pleasure out of us, and that's why he created us. But according to the Bible, God created us because he is love, and love longs to pour itself out, even if it's not going to be returned. That's why God made Lucifer, knowing Lucifer's not going to return love, because what choice does he have? If you live eternally, you have an eternal universe, and you give all of these beings the freedom to choose whether or not they want to love you, someday, somewhere in the scope of eternity, someone's going to say, what if I don't? What if I don't want to love you? And so God has the choice to not create anybody with free will, or to just say, go ahead. And when it happens, it'll hurt, but I'll be able to get through it. Because you see, pain is not God's enemy. Selfishness is God's enemy. Sin is God's enemy. Isn't that what the whole life of Jesus shows? Jesus faces pain and says, it's going to hurt, isn't it? But where is sin? Where is selfishness and where is love? I will follow the loving path when it goes through the most painful valley that anyone has ever gone through. Sin is God's enemy. Pain is not God's enemy. Pain is his tool to use to change us into his image. So when we're looking unto Jesus, we find perfect balance in our relationships with other people too. Remember, it's a process. Don't feel terrible if you don't do everything perfectly. But when we're not looking unto Jesus, we veer onto one side or the other side of selfishness, looking to self. On the one side, we have immersionism, and that's what this presentation is about, when people are too absorbed in relationships with other people. In other words, when we try to get people to do what only God can do for us in relationships. On the other side, you have isolationism, and that's what we'll talk about in our next presentation when pain becomes our enemy and we're not willing to let ourselves be vulnerable with other people because they might hurt us. So we only love the ones that we're sure are not going to hurt us, and we only love them to the extent that we feel safe. That's not the model of Jesus. And so that's not the model that God calls people who are seeking to follow Jesus to live like. Immersionism is just as dangerous as isolationism 
but just in different ways. So when we're talking about immersionism, the world calls this codependency, or the Bible calls it the fear of man. There are a lot of different ways that you can, you can uh, become an immersionist. Lots of different manifestations. So one person that's immersionist may behave totally differently from another person who's immersionist. But immersionism is idolatry of relationships, feeling too much of a need for relationships. You see, these two forms of not looking unto Jesus are two forms of living selfishly. One is to seek pleasure. In immersionism, you try to seek pleasure. In isolationism, you try to avoid pain. Both of these are not biblical ways to live. When, when we're truly living biblically, we want to glorify God first, to live our lives for his glory. So when you're susceptible to peer pressure, when you don't have any boundaries, the problem is generally that you're trying to please people too much. You're not able to say no to them because you need their favor too much. You need them to love you. Immersionism in the Bible is called the fear of man. Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Now the Good News Bible says it this way, It is dangerous to be concerned with what others think of you, but if you trust the Lord, you are safe. Isn't that amazing? It is dangerous to be concerned with what others think of you. What are some signs of the fear of man? Here are some ways that people behave if they struggle with the fear of man. Susceptibility to peer pressure, people-pleasing, overconsciousness of appearance. This is a big one, especially for young people. When you get to be my age, you realize, oh, slowly it's all going away. But when you're still 15 or 20 or 25, you think you can make it forever. Need-based relationships, fear of exposure or vulnerability, worrying about what people think of you, being easily embarrassed, telling little white lies, jealousy, shyness or avoiding people, a need to impress others or name-drocking. You know, I hung out with John Bradshaw today, <laughs> you know. Trying to show people I'm, I'm special or I'm important. Some way, you know, hoping to gain a little bit of rank in their eyes. Yeah, me and my BMW, we go everywhere together, you know. Oh, wow, you know, like you're going to suddenly become more important. Signs of the fear of man um, basically involve looking to other people to make you feel loved or worthwhile. And you know, this is, this is the underlying feature of most relationships that I see. You know, here I live on a university campus, but I have to say, I just feel so sad when I walk across campus sometimes and I see people just slobbering all over each other. I'm like, really? Really, you need to do that? That badly? And if I were to ask those people, what is it that drives you to this? You know, I just feel like I can't live without him. I just love her so much, you just have no idea. I've, I've heard this so many times that I just, you know, I, I want to laugh, but it's not funny. When I hear that, if you really understand what love is like, then you'll understand why I persevere with him even though he beats me or even though whatever, you know. What a lot of people call love is parasitism. I can't live without you, right? That, that's just really sorry, and it doesn't work in marriage. Um, in the book, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, page 11, it says, we settle for the satisfaction of human relationships when they were meant to point us to the perfect relational satisfaction found only with God. The irony is that when we reverse the order and elevate creation above creator, we destroy the relationships God intended and would have enabled us to enjoy. You know, I've seen two people who love God and are bound for the kingdom and 
so powerful in working for God get into a relationship with one another, and suddenly they become enmeshed with each other. They become wrapped up in each other's presence. And soon, their relationship with God is drying up because the relationship that's getting all their time and energy is their relationship with the other person. Now they become needy. They need this other person to love them and to satisfy them. And soon, because they, they aren't getting nourished emotionally with deep intimacy with God, they, get, they start crossing lines sexually with one another. Then they feel terrible, and they feel even farther from God. Because they feel even farther from God, but they don't understand that the blood of Christ will cleanse you from all of your sin if you go back to him, they pray, they confess, they get up from their knees, they still feel bad, and before you know it, they're back to doing exactly the same thing with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Then they feel still farther from God, and before you know it, their whole lives are wrapped around that other person. They know they need to get out of that relationship, but they cannot. And until they get married, and that relationship falls apart and no longer gives them the satisfaction that they so desperately crave, they will not break it off, because they cannot break it off. The way that they could break it off would be to reconnect with God, to believe what God says in his word, and to cut off the idol. But instead, they'll say, well, you know, we thought about breaking up, but we love each other so much, and we just decided we'd pray a lot more and go to church a little more. No. When you are swimming in the ocean and there's nothing else to hold on to except this rotting log, you're going to hang on to the rotting log. And when you try to swim away from the rotting log to get to shore, but shore looks far away, you cling to the rotting log because it's your instinct. Until you let go, if you just try dragging the rotting log with you to shore, the chances of that working out are pretty small. But instead, God, in his love and mercy, lets the rotting log sink. So you have nothing to do but swim to shore. You see, this is an act of love that God does for us. He makes our idols crumble in order to bring us back to himself. But unless we come back to him, then we just frantically look for another relationship. And I know so many people who just, you know, they're like a monkey in the jungle. They swing on one vine until they've got another one in sight. Then they let go of that one in order to grab the next one, you know? Well, this guy doesn't like me, but I think that one does. I can make it now. You know, it's such an empty, desperate life. God doesn't want us to live that way. And by living that way, we actually destroy the beautiful relationships that he wants us to enjoy. The Bible talks about this in John 12, verses 42, 43, and 42 and 43. It talks about the Jewish leaders. And it says many people like this, you know, do what the Jews did. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. This is what is at the root. When I love how people make me feel more than I love God, then I will go to my idols instead of to Christ. Many people in ministry, they get angry or discouraged when people don't like them. You know, they'll, they'll be so dedicated, so on fire. I'm going to go out there and preach this. I'm going to start this ministry. I'm going to do these wonderful things at the church. And then six months later or two years later or whatever, they're bitter. You know, I did all this stuff for the church. I did these things, and I helped these people. And do you know what they did? Nothing. Nothing at all. Well, I'm never going to help them again. That's the way it is. Well, what were they doing it for in the first place? Were they doing it to help the person, or were they doing it for the affirmation they would get out of the other person going, wow, you're such an amazing Christian? Or out of the church going, wow, you spoke so well at these series. You know, when we work for the praise of men, we get burnt. On the other hand, in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, we read about when Jesus went to the Passover at Jerusalem, and the crowds were just thronging him. They were so excited about Jesus. But it says this interesting thing. It says, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them. And that Greek word for commit himself unto is trust. 
or depend upon them. Jesus did not depend upon them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus knew that the tide of public opinion is just that, a tide comes in, goes out. And that's why he was never elated by applause or dejected by censure, because he was getting his sense of identity and worth and lovability from his relationship with his father. That's why when other people betrayed him, like Peter or Judas, Jesus could take it. Jesus could take it and keep loving them because he had so much love pouring into him from his father that he knew people are going to hurt me, but pain is not my enemy. I can keep on loving those people, and no matter what they do to me, they cannot destroy me. They may hurt me, but they will not destroy me. You see, Jesus lived in constant consciousness of his father's love. He lived in constant prayer. And that's why he could commune with his father and find the strength he needed to face the rejection and pain of human relationships. This is the cycle of death unto death that happens in most people's lives. When we don't internalize God's love, we live as prisoners to isolationism or immersionism. When we're in those things, let's say immersionism, when you're immersed with some other person and they become the center of your universe, you will not internalize God's love. You will instead, you know, it's like, well, I know I need to spend time with God and it would be really good for me, but I just want to go hang out with my girlfriend for a while here. So that's what I'm going to do right now. I'll get back to God later, of course. I'm going to go spend time with God soon, soon, just not right now. When we feel down, we call that person or we lean on that person or we, you know, we may pray with that person, but who are we connecting with? God or this person who makes me feel loved and worthwhile? So God wants us to break free from that. When we don't internalize God's love, we get on this cycle of death unto death, getting farther and farther from God and not feeling our need of him. God wants us instead to have the cycle of life unto life. When you love God, when he pours his love into you and you internalize it, we're going to talk more about that in the next presentation, how to really internalize the love of God, then he will empower you to love others, not in order to manipulate them, not in order to get them to make you feel more loved and more worthwhile, but just because you value them. Because you see, this is the amazing thing. When you realize that the God of the universe looks down through his universe to this tiny dot of a galaxy, to this tiny dot of our solar system, to this tiny dot of our planet, to this tiny dot of you, the speck of dust, and he made the speck of dust and breathed into you the breath of life. And now when you become a living soul, you are launched into being worth more to him than the universe that he rules. When you really internalize that and then you look around, you'll see people with new eyes. You go, wow, I'm valued like that and so is that homeless guy. I'm valued like that and so is that woman who's mentally disabled. I'm valued like that and so is that person who wears clothes that aren't in style or who doesn't have the right hairstyle or whatever it is. We look at those people with new eyes we see them as priceless in the light of the cross, just like ourselves. It's opposite than how the world does, you know? You step on other people in order to get higher. Well, at least I don't dress like that. At least I don't do that. At least I get good grades, or at least I'm good at this, or at least I'm pretty. Whatever it is, God doesn't want us to base our sense of worth on those things because they rise and fall. You know, it doesn't matter how good you look today. Tomorrow, you may feel terrible when you see you've got a zit or you just have a bad hair day or whatever it is. If your basis of worth or lovability is what people think of you or something changeable, then you will never be secure. But when you internalize the fact that God loves you and there's nothing you can do 
to touch that love. Nothing you can do to take away from it, nothing you can do to add to it. It frees you from having to try to perform. And then you're just so amazed by his love that you pour yourself out to him. This is how God wants us to be on the cycle of life unto life, where the more we love him, the more he flows through us to love others. Then we see those others for who they are and who God wants them to be. And we pour ourselves out in loving them. And if they hurt us, okay, we take it back to God and it drives us close to God. Whether those people love us and we go, wow, Lord, thank you for these beautiful friendships you've given to me, or they burn us. And we come back and say, Lord, I'm broken. How do you do it? How do you keep loving people who hurt you like that? Then he'll remind us, this is what you've done to me. The same thing that person did to you, you've done to me. And we go, wow, Lord, you love me like that? I didn't understand you love me like that. So you see, the more you love other people, no matter how they respond to you, the more it drives you to love God. And the more you love God, the more it drives you to love people. Here's the cycle of life unto life. That's why God wants us to keep his great law of love. Love God first, love your neighbor as yourself. If you just do one of these, you're not a law keeper. Why do we get trapped in these cycles? The first reason is our own sinful hearts. We're just naturally selfish. Anybody who has children knows that humanism is a lie, or at least they should. My children were born with very healthy sinful natures, very healthy lungs that they knew how to use to demand that we give them what they wanted, no matter what we wanted. So our own sinful hearts trap us, sinful worldly influences. The world around you constantly tells you that you should be satisfied. You have a right to be happy, right? Novels and music and magazines and everything else tell you that if you're beautiful enough and popular enough and everything else, you should be successful. Everybody should treat you well. And if they don't, you should demand that they treat you well, right? And other sins against us often trap us in these cycles too. Sometimes we can't believe the love that God has for us because our parents didn't show us what love looked like. And so we still are, are trapped in this feeling like, but I still have to do these things to make God love me because that's the way it always was in my family. That must be the way it will always be. But there have never been any perfect parents. So everybody is stained in some way. Their, their perception of who God is is marred in some way by their parents' mistakes and imperfections. But that must be good news because that means God must have a way to bring us to understand who he really is instead of just believing who we feel he is based on what our, our backgrounds are. Because even if your parents were perfect, what about the kids at school? What about your siblings? What about the other people in your life that give you a constant feeling you're not valuable because you're not pretty enough or you don't do everything right or whatever it is? So. That's why when I'm dealing with people in counseling, I ask them about their families of origin because that usually would give me a key to understanding what it is that is their misperception of God's character. You know, if they've always felt like if they could just measure up, then their parents would love them, they're going to feel that way about God too. If I just could measure up, then he'd love me. I don't know why. I can't believe that God loves me, but I can't. Or I don't know why. I feel that God is angry and lashing out at me when I don't do everything perfectly. I don't know why God just seems like he's so distant from me. Well, maybe it's because your parents or your father or you know, your mother, someone just felt distant from you. You could never emotionally connect. They didn't seem to care about what was going on in your life. You may feel that God is that way too. No problem. The Bible tells you who God is, and you have to meditate on what the Word says so that what God says he is will weigh more to you than what you feel he is. Then you will start finding freedom from those doubts about who God is. God's plan for our families is that perfect parents will internalize that love of God 
and they'll be like these gears, you know, the love of God gear turns and it interlocks with the love of the parent so that the parent shows perfect love to that child up there. And since that isn't the way that it happens in most families perfectly, now every family has flaws, but God also works in families. That's why we don't hatch out of eggs in the woods, right? And look to only God for support. He wants us to understand what relationships are like. And so one of the best ways he can show us is by giving us parents and families in which we can relate. They're not going to give us a perfect picture of God, but they can give us a big boost toward understanding how love works. Now, families are the building blocks of society. So when families have problems, it's natural that society is going to crumble too. But God wants us to meditate on his word, who he says he is, and internalize the promise of Psalm 27.10. It says, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. That doesn't just mean if your parents take off and leave you behind. But in any way that your parents have not perfectly reflected God's love to you, and I speak for myself, I'm a parent who doesn't perfectly reflect God's love to my children, so I have to apologize to them sometimes. But I know that God is going to help them to understand what he says in his word. You know, as, as human beings, as parents or as siblings or as friends or whatever, our purpose is to be like a straw, to let God's love flow through us. What happens when a straw is blocked? There's something in the middle of it. Is it still useful to let things flow through it? No, so much of the process of sanctification is God cleaning the straw, helping us to have less blockages so that he can flow through us more fully to show people what his love is like. Now, the book Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, page 7, which is another awesome book to read, says, Our family of origin is just one of many influences on our view of relationships. You have not become who you are all by yourself, which is why relationships are so important. They are inescapable and powerfully influential. The difficulty is that sin and grace coexist in all of them. In other words, your family wasn't perfect, but it's better than having no family at all, right? Embrace the blessings. My parents did so many things right in raising me. They taught me to work hard. They had me out in the garden. I had lots of sunshine and fresh air and fresh water and sisters who loved me. And, you know, we went out on picnics at the lake. And, you know, I learned that quality time with family was important, that having fun together was important, that hard work and always telling the truth were important. Were there other weaknesses? Yes, there were. There were things that didn't go so well in my family. The shouting and being called a stupid idiot and things like that, that didn't work so great for me. It was an imperfect reflection of who God is. And so I've had to battle with believing that God is who he says he is, that he doesn't turn his back on me when I don't do everything right. But this is where the word of God will come in and make up the difference in the ways that your family may be, you know, God's love is up here as the perfect standard. Your family may only have painted you an imperfect picture of who God is, but God wants to fill in the rest in his word so that you understand what love is up here. That's why it's God's will for you to know and believe the love that God has for you. The question that we have to ask always when it comes to relationships, though, is who has your heart? The book Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, page 68, says whatever rules the heart will exercise inescapable influence over the person's life and behavior. Whatever rules your heart will transform the way you live. You see, God is always after the heart. He doesn't just want you to behave well. He wants you to give him your heart. And when you surrender your heart, then your behavior will change. But 
you know, so often people think, if I just get this, then I'll be happy, you know? If I can just get married, then I'll finally achieve the pinnacle of glorious living in this world. Well, a little bit of looking at statistics will tell you that that's not true, since, you know, half of marriages are ending in divorce, and you know a whole lot of the ones that stay together aren't anything like happiness. But that doesn't cure generation after generation from living their lives, oh Lord, please Jesus, don't come before I get married, right? <laughs> Generation after generation somehow thinks that if I can just attain marriage and have sex, wow, life will be so amazing. But it's not true. The Bible says the issues are always about your heart. If you have a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, that's how you'll be equipped to have a deep, intimate relationship with another human being who can help you to learn what love is like. Now, the purpose of marriage is not to make you happy. A lot of people have this idea that if I just get married, then I'll be happy. And the key is to find the right person. They get married, and what do you know? They don't get substantially happier. So then they figure, if I just married the right person, that would have been the ideal. But since I'm married to this person, let me see if I can manipulate him or her to change a little bit. If you just do this, then I could be happy. If you could just stop doing that, then I could be happy. But the purpose of marriage is not to make you happy, just like the purpose of life is not to make you happy. It's to make you holy. And the holier you become, the happier you can be because you're living the way God intended, right? In other words, Joseph wasn't really happy with living down in the prison, but because he knew he was right with God and his heart was unstained, he was content. And that's why he could walk into the prison cell of the, butcher, the butler and the baker, not the butcher, right? The butler and the baker and say, hey guys, why do you look so sad today? Not because he liked being in prison, not because they didn't have a good reason to be kind of bummed they're in prison. Why are they looking so sad today? But that's what the Bible says he said when he walked into that prison cell. Why do you guys look so sad today? Here's a guy who's living compassionately. If anybody in there has a right to be bitter, it should be Joseph, right? But instead, he's in there blessing others. He's living a holy life. He is surrendered to Christ and saying, what would Jesus do if he were in my shoes? Right? He's letting God live out his life through him. And because of that, Joseph became a holier, richer, deeper, better person. God's purpose in marriage is to change you into his image. And marriage is this relationship in which you're, you're together with this other person. They're in your space so much of the time that they show you all kinds of ways that you're not like Jesus. All these ways you didn't realize that you were selfish until you got married. And then you have children. <clears throat> but I digress. I'm not going to go there. Anyway, <clears throat> the Bible says that God wants your heart. In Proverbs, Proverbs 4.23, it says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And what does the Bible say about what's going on in your heart when your heart is broken? Psalm 147, verse 3 says, He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. You see, God is always after your heart. He knows what's going on in your heart. And in your heart is where he's going to do a great work to transform you into his image. You see, sin, we, we often think that sin is what you do, but sin is so much more than doing the wrong thing. It begins with loving, worshiping, and serving the wrong thing. That's from the book Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, page 67, by Paul David Tripp. An excellent book if you're interested in biblical counseling and understanding how to, how to get a biblical foundation for life and for ministry. But sin goes to the thoughts and motives of the heart. That's why the Bible, the Word of God, reveals the thoughts and motives of the heart, right? Because God wants to get to your heart 
to reveal your thoughts and motives, to show you every day new ways that you can be transformed into his image. Because that's redemption, right? Isn't redemption the process of God taking sinful, selfish people and transforming them into unselfish people who are reflectors of his image, who are in harmony with the whole universe out there? There's a whole universe out there, right, that's living by God's law of love. We, we understand selfishness, but to them it's a mystery. Why would you guys want to live like that? You know, when we hear that Lucifer and Jesus were, you know, near the throne of God and God takes in, you know, God the Father takes Jesus into counsel with him and Lucifer's left out there in the cold and goes, huh, you guys, you shut me out. Well, our selfish hearts go, well, yeah, of course he'd be jealous. But that's the way we think. That's not the way they thought in heaven. And so we, we have this whole selfish mentality and God wants to purge us of it. This world is the little... Um, the little experiment where everybody goes, hey, I think we'll try living selfishly. If everybody tries to get what they want, then everybody will be happy. Lucifer declared this, even though in heaven God had said, everybody love God first, love your neighbor as yourself, everybody will be happy. He says, I got a better idea. Everybody love yourself and try to get what you want. And if everybody tries to get what they want, you see the biggest peach on the tree, you take it. Everybody tries to get the one they want, everybody will be happy. And God says, well, it's not going to work, but I'm not going to stop you from trying because... I'm a God of love and I give you free choice. So we get to be the ugly little experiment, the Petri dish in which everybody else in the universe is going, whoa, why do you guys want to keep doing that? And God wants to bring us out of that soup of evil into a life of holiness, to be in harmony with the rest of the universe. While we're living down here in this world where selfishness rules, to be in harmony with the universe and to let him pour his light through us, his love through us, so that we are channels of light and blessing to the world. And when we show to the world what God's love is like, we're a testimony to him. We learn to live by the laws of heaven. And someday when Jesus comes to take us, all those who are like him get caught up to be up there. And the selfish world gets burned up. Does it make sense? This is how God works to deliver people from evil by showing us the thoughts and motives of our hearts. Why are we doing things the way that we're doing them? You see, we, we used to have a tree in our backyard. The first house that we lived in when we moved here to Collegedale, it had this huge tree. I mean, the thing was huge. When I put my arms out like this around the trunk, I was like halfway around the tree. This thing was massive. But it also had these branches that were dying and falling down. When there'd be a storm, a branch will be coming down and looking like it's gonna kill somebody. You know what they call those widow makers? for good reason. So I was afraid to let my kids play in the backyard and we talked to our landlords and said, look, this tree has got to come down. So they sent out the professionals who took some scissors and cut off all the leaves on the tree. You think? Is that how you get rid of a tree? Nope, definitely not. What did they do? The professionals got up there and first they lopped off the branches. Then they started chopping down chunks of the trunk. And finally, when they got all the way down to the ground, then they took their neat little stump grinder thing and they ground out the stump all the way down under the ground as far as they could get it. You see, that's how God wants to work in our lives. When we have a relationship that's idolatrous, he doesn't always just, you know, sweep it away, tornado style. Instead, he starts showing us what the thoughts and motives of our hearts are. But his goal is always to get to the root of our selfishness and to show us new ways he wants to turn us into being the image of him. You know, when my, if my daughter, if I tell her, go out in the yard and get rid of all the dandelions, 
She may go out there and pick all of the dandelion flowers. Is that going to be helpful? It may be helpful in that you know, it prevents them all from going to seed so that there are 20,000 dandelions where there were 20 before, right? But it's still not going to substantially deal with the dandelion problem. But my daughter's not going to be strong enough to go out there with a shovel. She's eight years old. She's not going to be able to go out there with a shovel and get all the way to the bottom of the dandelion roots, is she? Because those things go deep. That means she needs help. You know, we can recognize, as we hear these, these quotations and we get a glimpse of the gospel, we can recognize there are things in our relationships that need to be changed. But I want to encourage you not to try to fix them by yourself. You're not going to be able to pluck off the dandelions and solve the dandelion problem. It's only when God is working in you and through you when I go out there with a shovel beside my daughter and I help her dig down to the root of the dandelions, that's the only way we're going to get the dandelions out of the yard and deal with the problem for good. God wants to go to the roots, the thoughts and motives of your heart. When your heart is thirsty, don't open your cell phone. Don't order a pizza. Go to God. Say to him, I need you. I need you to satisfy me. I need you to give me a sense of how much I'm loved, how much I'm worth. That's the only way you can have relationships that are truly healthy. If you get into a relationship with another person of the opposite sex, hoping to get some kind of satisfaction, you're going to be like that person with the rotting log. You're going to find it next to impossible not to cling to that relationship and get your sense of lovability and worth out of that. So instead, get it first from God, and then you'll be free to choose whether or not this is the right person for you. You can look at things with balanced eyes that aren't clouded by the desperate need to be loved and worthwhile. The Bible says all, I mean, sorry, the book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, page 95, says all experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. People are big. They have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. Since there is no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. Therefore, the first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious, not other people. Um, I'm almost finished here. I just want to finish where when God and spirituality are reduced to our standards or our feelings, God will never be to us the awesome Holy One of Israel. With God reduced in our eyes, a fear of people will thrive. If your need for relationship is too big, with people. Focus on your relationship with God. Praise Him. Talk to Him about how mighty He is, how amazing His love is. Look at in your own heart, examine, what is it that I'm thirsty for? What is it I'm trying to get out of my relationships with other people? Maybe make a list of the lies the devil is telling you, or the things that you're longing for, and then look in the Bible for the things that God says about who He is, about how He satisfies our hearts. Meditate on those things. In this way, who God says He is will grow in your mind, and who you feel He is will shrink in your mind, and you'll come into balance. Um, the book, When People Are Big and God is Small, pages 107 and 108, says, A growing knowledge of God displaces the fear of people, and it casts out our tendency to be casual with our secret sins. And the good news is it can be learned. You must simply be a person who prays and seeks after this great gift. See, the person who fears God will fear nothing else. That's the relationship you want to have with God that will enable you to have clear, pure, beautiful relationships with other people. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we just ask for you to give us a deeper, richer, greater love for you. 
Help us to behold your love and to be changed into your image. And Lord, I pray that that will flow into every area of our lives. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.